Well, good evening, and it's good to see you again this evening as we are back on Sunday evenings actually in the church. As Adam has said, we're starting a new series uh, on the book of Samuel. We'll be covering this combined book over the, the next two years in four chunks. And uh, in our Bibles, it's divided into two, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And this evening, we're beginning the first series on the first half of 1 Samuel. So let's read from chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't, you may like to listen. So first of all, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, I wish he had lived somewhere a bit easier to pronounce, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The names of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. When Peninnah had, ch and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And just for a few verses in chapter 2. This is Hannah's response to all that had happened. She says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My heart, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. And down to verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. From, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. And down to verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I'm going to try to limit uh, myself to three topics uh, from the passage uh, we've read this evening. First of all, we'll have some brief historical background and a brief look at the purpose of the book. Secondly, we'll look at this dysfunctional family which the start of the book focuses on. And thirdly, we'll look at what Hannah discovered about God through her very stressful experience. So first of all, some brief historical background about uh, the purpose of the book. The book of Samuel begins towards the end of the time of the judges. This is about 3,000 years ago, so we're going back about 3,000 years to perhaps around 1100 BC. The events of chapter 1 that we've read, they happen around a town in Israel called Shiloh, which is north of Jerusalem, although Jerusalem wasn't an Israelite city at this time. Now, actually, uh, about 100 years ago, the remains of Shiloh were rediscovered by archaeologists, and they've been excavated on and off for almost 100 years. And all the finds confirm the historical accuracy of the Bible's account. Now, Shiloh was significant because that is where the tabernacle was set up. The tabernacle was like a mobile temple that had served them during the wilderness journey. But when they came into the land, they didn't build a temple straight away. They used the tabernacle as the temple, and it was located in Shiloh. Up to three times a year, the people of Israel were encouraged to gather at the tabernacle to offer sacrifices, just as we read Elkanah and his family doing in chapter 1. Now, archaeologists believe that they have found the precise spot in Shiloh where the tabernacle was set up, and the dimensions of the stone base correspond exactly to the dimensions of the tabernacle in the Bible. So I just mentioned that to say these events really happened in history, and the archaeology uh, proves that. 
Now, in the time of judges, there was no central government. Each tribe was separate, and there was no federal control. From time to time, God did raise up leaders, but they were from different tribes. So there was no central parliament. Uh, Shiloh was the closest they had to a capital city. So that's at the start of the book. But by the end of the book of Samuel, we have King David on the throne, an established monarchy reigning from Jerusalem. Now, that huge change is not merely a point of minor historical interest. It represented a fundamental change in how Israel was governed. Shiloh, with the tabernacle and the high priest, was the only central national institution in Israel at this time. The nation came together not for political celebrations, but to offer sacrifices. So in that sense, their only leader was God. But Israel was not satisfied with that arrangement. They became concerned with what other nations thought of uh, uh, them and their confusing lack of government. So the book of Samuel describes the transition from a very decentralized government to a system whereby power was centralized in one person, the king. The first king was Saul, and the second king was David. Now, Samuel's job, when he became a prophet, was to choose and to anoint and to mentor the kings under the authority of God's word. Now, let me ask you this question, particularly if you're interested in politics. But do you think that the model of having power centralized upon one king is a better form of government than the very decentralized, devolved system of the judges? I'll not take a show of hands. But the history of Britain, particularly over the last 500 years or so, has been a steady move away from a centralized form of government based on one very powerful king and moving towards a more democratic model of government. Do you think that move has been a good one? I think it was Churchill who summed up the problem nicely when he said that democracy is the worst form of government, apart from all the others. And sometimes Christians, particularly in the USA, have mistakenly associated democracy with Christianity. I wonder what they would make of the, the fact that democracy was a rejection of the Old Testament model of government where absolute power was centralized in one leader, the king. But that's mere speculation on my part. But the history of the Western world has revealed both the advantages and disadvantages of having power centralized in one powerful figure. Generally speaking, the disadvantages seem to have outweighed the advantages. History has shown how power corrupts. When one person rises to a position of absolute power, in nearly all cases, it has ended in disaster. Power gets abused. Even if the ruler starts off well, the pressures and strains of government can destroy good rulers, especially when there is opposition either from inside or from outside. And this has led powerful rulers to resort to doing things later on in their reign, which they would never have dreamt of doing in their early years. And yet, in the book of Samuel, 
we see the replacing of a decentralized government with a system where power is indeed centralized upon one figure, the king. Was this a good move? Did God approve of it? As we'll see, it was originally the idea of Israel to have this change. They wanted a king, even though God warned them of the consequences. And yet, God gave them a king, but he did it very intelligently. First, God gave them a a how-not-to-do-it type of king, King Saul. And only then did God choose David as their king, who was closer in some ways to the sort of king that God wanted. And in the book of Samuel, we see how God mentored King David even before he became king. And he mentored him during his reign. God was constantly training and even correcting David. We see how God's concept of a kingdom uh, properly run by a king is very different from what most evangelical Christians today uh, think uh, God's kingdom should be like. And they, they do not agree with, actual, with what happened in Samuel and with the type of king that God wants. And in, indeed, the book of Samuel provides the Christian world with a much needed and very healthy education in God's concept of exercising power. It's very different from an autocratic dictatorship. So that's what we'll see over the next two years. The very first person in the book of Samuel to discover the wonderful nature of how God exercises power is actually the woman called Hannah that we read of. She discovered how God will be able to rule through a king, but without the inevitable abuse of power, uh, the abuse of centralized power. Her song in chapter... an intense emotional and spiritual roller coaster in her own personal life. And this is what chapter one describes. And that brings us to our second topic this evening, this dysfunctional family which starts the book. The whole book starts with a small family. It was definitely not a happy family. There was the man Elkanah, then there was his wife Hannah. And judging from the order in which his two wives are introduced, Hannah was his first wife and Peninnah was his second wife. Hannah wasn't able to have children and it seems uh, reasonable to assume that Elkanah married Hannah first and really loved her. But because she couldn't have children, Elkanah was afraid that his family line would die out so he simply married another girl uh, called Peninnah. And uh, Peninnah was able to give him children and thus continue his family line. The result, as you can imagine, was a family full of tensions, rivalry and stresses. I'm tempted to say that having one wife can cause enough tension, but having two increases the tension exponentially. It was a melting pot of emotions. And to some extent, humanly speaking, it was unavoidable because of Hannah's uh, inability to have children and because of the social structures and stereotypes of the day. 
And in the text, the Lord takes responsibility for Hannah's barrenness. It was something that he allowed to happen for a purpose. If God had explained to Hannah at the start what was going to happen, her family life might have been much happier. But she would never have become the person, uh, the person of eternal significance that she did become. So temporary tranquility and harmony in family life is not necessarily the most important thing in God's plans. Families in the Bible which have been used by God were rarely happy, stress-free families. Sometimes deep tensions in families uh, were in danger of tearing the families apart. But if even one member of such a family used those tensions to drive them to the Lord, to drive them to trust the Lord completely, that is often how God worked. So let's look at some of the individuals. First of all, at Elkanah, the husband. Now, some people think that Elkanah was a good man in everything he did. Do you think so? If you do, then please forgive me, because I'm going to uh, take a, a slightly less charitable view of Elkanah. I hope he'll forgive me as well if I'm wrong. You remember that when Hannah was distressed because she knew, could not have children and she wouldn't even eat, Elkanah thought he would comfort her with these words. Hannah, why do you weep? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now it is a blessing when a wife has a husband who loves her. But Elkanah's comforting words seem to me to show a lack of understanding of his wife and a failure to appreciate her ambitions and no concept of Hannah's sense of identity. If I was being particularly unkind, I would be tempted to rephrase Elkanah's words by saying, what more could a woman want than to have me as a husband? Now that may be going a bit too far, but his words of comfort do seem to be a little self-centered. But more than that, I think it's clear that his words definitely reveal that he had double standards. Imagine the time earlier when Elkanah discovered that Hannah could not have children. Hannah would have seen his concern. Now imagine if Hannah had said to him at that time, am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, we know how Elkanah responded to that thought. He would have said, no, you are not. And he promptly married another wife. He expected Hannah to accept, accept circumstances which he himself refused to accept. It was double standards in a marriage. He was not only blind to his own double standards, he seems to have been totally blind to the stresses and the unhappiness which his own decision had caused in his family. Now, you have probably never met a man who has even hints of those tendencies. And it's not my place to warn husbands of the danger of allowing similar attitudes to develop in your own home. But in passing, we can't help noticing uh, how scripture points out some of the failings and stresses which can arise even in a family which on the outside seems a, go a good, godly family. And what about Penina? Well, she's often regarded as the bad one, as we say in Northern Ireland, but her life was no picnic. 
Elkanah thought he was helping matters when he showed special favour to Hannah. But Peninnah saw this as evidence that Elkanah did not love her as much as Hannah. She felt she was just being used to have children and was not loved as a person in her own right. And she took out her resentment on innocent Hannah. When Elkanah showed favouritism to Hannah, he had no concept of what this was doing to his second wife, Peninnah. Throughout scripture, favouritism is always regarded as a deadly thing, no matter how well-intentioned it might be. In Israel's very early history, we get a similar situation when Jacob, well, he had two wives as well. He had married his childhood sweetheart, Rachel, and her less attractive sister, Leah. At that time, God was particularly sensitive to Leah's feeling of rejection. So we know that God understood Peninnah's emotional response, even if her reactions were all wrong and only made things worse for everyone. And finally, what about Hannah? Well, we can understand to some extent Hannah's feeling of depression. There were several factors, social factors and personal factors, which combined to make her grief so intense. It was not just the fact that she couldn't have children. It was compounded by her husband's lack of understanding and especially by the taunts of Peninnah. It all seemed so unjust. But in her suffering, she did what many failed to do. She was always a genuinely spiritual and godly woman. She knew the scriptures well, which was really something in those days. Hannah, in her distress, finally turned to the Lord completely. I'm sure she had prayed for children many times in her life. But when she and the family visit the tabernacle at Shiloh in chapter 1, Hannah was driven to go a step further than ever before. She now asked for a son, not for herself, but to give back to the Lord. And that was a very significant step. Because her previous intense longing for children was a mixture of several different motivations and desires. Natural, but not necessarily spiritual. There was her natural maternal instinct. There was her desire for status in her family, uh, with her husband, and no doubt with her in-laws. And uh, her desire as well was uh, intensified by the taunts of Peninnah. Then there was a sense, her sense of identity in society at that time, a very patriarchal society. Having children would have been evidence to others that she had fulfilled her mission as a woman. In the culture she lived in, her inability to have children robbed her of a sense of purpose and life. But it wasn't just in the eyes of others it was in her own eyes. It was what is sometimes called her own self-esteem or her own sense of identity. Her failure to have children undermined her identity as a person and her, her sense of self-worth in her own eyes. Now, as I said, these are all understandable. But the Lord was calling her to move beyond those natural feelings, those natural pressures. He was calling her not to remain as a victim of unfortunate circumstances and social pressures, not to live in a world of regret and sorrow, 
The Lord was waiting almost for Hannah to be backed into a corner where the only move she could make was to give everything to the Lord. And in offering to give the son back to the Lord, she was not bargaining with the Lord. She was moving to a new level of trust and faith. She was prepared to sacrifice her own natural sense of identity and to place who she was as a person completely into the Lord's hands. That was a very personal choice that Hannah made. Many people do not take that step. We sometimes describe it nowadays as using phrases like laying on or all on the altar for the Lord, or as Roman 12 puts it, uh, offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God. The Lord has made us who we are. And if we are disappointed and frustrated by who we are, then let's choose not to live through our lives as victims, but to instead respond by throwing ourselves and our role in life onto the Lord. Now, this is way out of my area, I must say, but I would just like to comment that I have great admiration for Christian couples who haven't been able to have children, but who have given themselves to being spiritual parents, to give spiritual uh, mentoring to young people, perhaps those who sometimes lack spiritual encouragement at home. They've acted as uh, parents, spiritual parents, in a way which will have impact for all eternity. When we come to read the history books of heaven, we'll see that such people feature highly. Let's look finally at what Hannah discovered about God. When the Lord answered Hannah's prayer, which Eli, the high priest, had supported, Hannah realized that God was starting to do something big in Israel, not just in her life, but she saw there was something bigger coming. Hannah understood the scriptures and the promises in scripture and had great insight into the breathtaking long-term plan which she saw God was now starting to work towards. And it sent a tingle down her spine. And she was moved to put her response to what God was doing into the words of a song. And we read part of that song in chapter two. I'll just make three uh, final points about this song. Notice how she ends the song with these words. <clears throat> the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Now there are three separate things which Hannah grasped about God's long-term plan for government. Firstly, she said, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. In other words, God's long-term plan was not just the government of Israel, but the government of the whole world. God has a plan for one day to govern the whole earth. How is he going to do that? Well, the second phrase in Hannah's closing statement was this, he will give strength to his king. This was years before Israel even asked for a king. Hannah saw that God was planning to govern the earth through a king, through one person with full authority who would have responsibility for governing the whole world. Hannah saw that God's plan would go beyond even the coming King David, 
King David would just be a sort of prototype for a king who would come. And she says, thirdly, he will exalt the power of his anointed. The word anointed is the word for Messiah, which means, which in Greek is Christ. Hannah had seen that God was moving on his plan to send someone called the Messiah, the King of Israel who would one day rule the whole world. Now, what immense power such a person must have. It does raise the natural questions and concerns. How will such a person, with power to rule the whole world, how will they avoid being corrupted by absolute power? Will that king abuse world power? What sort of person could be entrusted for such a task? And this is a key question throughout the whole book of Samuel. But what Hannah discovered, uh, she discovered the answer by experiencing something of the character of God, one special characteristic of God himself, which God had shown her in her own life, which showed why God could be trusted with such power. She says earlier in verses 2 and 3, there is no rock like our God. So she says to everybody else, talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The great problem with humans who have great power is that they inevitably become proud and arrogant. And when that happens, when someone who has absolute power is proud and arrogant, the result is total disaster. What we need is someone who is intrinsically humble. Someone who will remain humble even when they have experience in exercising absolute power. The world has never seen anyone like that. Hannah had seen something that gave her the answer to that. In her own experience, she had been despised, she had been looked down on by others in her family and by society, but the Lord had raised her up by giving her a son. And she noticed that this was a pattern of what God did, that God did not exalt people who had all the natural capabilities for the job. She saw how God raised the poor. She saw that God actually brought down the proud and arrogant people. And that told her this, God himself is humble. Does that surprise you? The God who made this universe, the God who has absolute power, he is a humble God, humble to the very core of his being. Personally, that's one reason why I can trust him. Let's go back to the question we started with. Is it wise to have a government based on a king who has complete authority? The answer is, of course, well, it depends on the king. You would need a king who is humble, who does not rule by wielding authority, by exercising power autocratically, and who does not rely on his power to get people to live the right way. And right at the start of this book, we see that the king which God chooses for his long-term plan will not govern by authority. And you say, well, how then Will he rule? How can you rule without exercising authority? Well, the king that God chose, even in Samuel, was a king 
who ruled by inspiring loyalty. By inspiring loyalty so that people served him and did what he wanted because they loved him. Not because he had absolute power, but because of the sort of person he was who inspired loyalty and love. That is one of the features of King David, uh, which is brought out in, in Samuel. Now, David, of course, was only a prototype of the real king whom God has planned to send. And that king is Jesus. Let me just end with some words which Jesus spoke about himself, which describe him as a king. And they capture the fundamental reason why Jesus is qualified to be trusted with absolute power. This is what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs>